and to put, once again, all our hope on that day when God dwells with man. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Whew. Just thinking about that day, singing together, singing that song on that day together in heaven with the glittering crown on our brows. Oh. We sing that song, we say, my Jesus, if ever I loved you, it's now. And that's so often not true because we want to love him more. That's why we open the word of God together. We open the word to love him more, to grow in our understanding of why he is lovely, worthy of all of our affections. So with that in mind, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I can't do this, Sam. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end. But how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? In the end, it's only a a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. So what are we holding on to? What do you hold on to that keeps you going? What do you hold on to in the midst of the darkness that keeps you pursuing and not giving up and not quitting? As Fredo asks Sam in the two towers, he says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. I understand the sentiment, but I would say there is some good in the next world, and it's worth fighting for. What are you holding on to? To use another piece of literature, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian said to his companions on his way to the celestial city, he would say, often, I am most happy when my eyes are fixed on the place where I am headed. What are we holding on to? We're holding on to and fixing our eyes on the place that we're headed, on our eternal home. This place is not our final destination. As we're going to see here, God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with him for all of eternity. Revelation 21 shows us where all of human history is heading. This is where we will end up. And honestly, the Bible does not make sense apart from these final two chapters in the book of Revelation. Our lives don't make sense apart from these two chapters as we end Revelation. The Bible's story ends where it began. In Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, God will create the new heavens and the new earth. 
In Genesis, we are introduced to the cunning power and strategies of the devil. And in Revelation, the devil is destroyed along with all of his strategies, along with all of his power, destroyed. In Genesis, we see the loss of being able to eat freely from the tree of life. And in Revelation, we are given that tree back and we can eat freely from it. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve hiding because of their sin and their shame. And in Revelation, we see God removing all guilt, all sin, all shame forever, and thus restoring the relationship in such a way where God dwells with his people, remains with them. We could say it this way, Genesis is paradise lost. Revelation is paradise regained. What are you holding on to that's going to keep you to the end? What do you have today that will get you through today? Because today may be difficult. Tomorrow may be even more difficult. The, the next season in your life may be the hardest one that you're going to go through. Whether it's trials, whether it's temptations, whether it's suffering. What will get you through today is an understanding of that day that is yet to come. That we have the privilege this morning of studying in Revelation 21. Heaven is described in scripture over 700 times. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we must set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. We must fix our minds on those things because those heavenly realities will get us through all of the earthly struggles and trials that we face. So let's read this section together. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And let's just take in the glory We've gone through the mess of the seven years of tribulation and great tribulation. We've gone through the, the second coming and the glory of the second coming and the destruction in the battle of Armageddon of all the ungodly. We've gone through the establishment of the millennial kingdom. We've gone through that final revolt. We've gone through the great white throne judgment. Last week, one of the most sobering, most difficult sermons that I've ever preached. And now we are finally here to glory in the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal state. Let's just drink in the glory of these verses. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, no longer any crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Father, we, we've been longing for this section. When we first opened Revelation, we knew that we were going to finally make it here. And this is the future reality that is the hope that grounds us and gives us assurance and confidence in these moments for this day. Father, I pray for all who have entered this place weary, struggling. Maybe it's that specific sin that they just keep falling into and they're tired of it and they hate it and they long to be freed from it. God, encourage them that there is a day coming when sin will no longer exist. Maybe it's the individual that walks in here with a broken heart Relationships torn, maybe past the point of being mended. God, assure them today that there is coming a day when there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more sorrow. Be near to us in these moments. Some of these verses seem too good to be true. So be near to us and remind us that these words are faithful and true. The reality of what we will see is absolutely true. May it be our anchor. May it be our confidence. And may it give us energy in the fight today, knowing there's a day when the fight will be done, you will win, and we will be on your side. Give us energy today. In light of that day, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 21 is going to teach us a great many things about the eternal state, about heaven, about the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. But this morning, we're just going to look at three, three glorious realities in verses one through eight of the new heavens and the new earth that will enable us today to fight and to live with perseverance, knowing that that day is coming. Glorious reality number one, the new heavens and the new earth are a completely sinless place. This is verse one. The new heavens and the new earth are a completely sinless place. The new heavens and the new earth are nothing less than an entirely overhauled universe that's purged of everything sinful. I don't know if you've heard of the show uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Have you heard that show, right? They go in, they, you know, in a week's time, uh, just demolish a house, make it up in such a way that it's beautiful, it's all new, it's all renovated. And then they show the, the people how beautiful their new home is. This is Extreme Makeover Universe Edition. This is God absolutely renovating his old creation, completely redoing it. This is what's promised in Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesies that there is going to be a time coming when the old heavens and the old earth are done for and God will bring in a new heavens and a new earth. 
This is going to be spectacular. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 says that they will be so full of glory and filled with majesty. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 26 says, Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, but they will fade away. Verse 26 says, They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. They will be changed. The old heavens, the the old earth, uh, which we're sitting on right now, it will fade away. Jesus himself said that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The heavens and earth, new heavens and new earth, comprehensive. Everything that we know to be reality here will be changed. And we have to have a change. We have to have new ones because in chapter 20, we saw the old heavens, the old earth, fleeing away from the great white throne judgment. So we have to have new ones. But we are told in verse 1, this new heaven and this new earth are not different in such a way from this that it's completely other from our present reality. This is a created realm with which we are familiar. That's why it's the new heavens and the new earth. What we are going to experience in the eternal state is a place that's familiar to us. It's new. It's a new world, but it's not an other world. Even the word for new here in the Greek suggests a newness in quality, but not a newness in kind. It's more similar, the new heavens and the new earth are more similar to this earth than we would imagine. We're not talking about something that has no relationship with our current experience. Too often, believers think that heaven is going to be a place where we are sitting with spirit bodies on a cloud playing a harp. That's typically what we buy into, and that's why it's no wonder that many believers say, I think heaven's going to be boring. That is boring. That that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. I enjoy music, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit on a cloud playing a harp with some see-through body. I don't want that. And praise the Lord, that's not what we're going to have. What we're going to enjoy is not floating on a cloud. We are going to enjoy a tangible, visceral, physical Experience. Most believers buy into a Greek and Platonic form of the afterlife. Uh, The Greeks believe that spirit was good, matter is bad. So in the end, in the eternal state, matter can't exist because matter is bad. So therefore, we're just going to be spiritual. We're just going to be spirit beings. We're going to float around as these weird, transparent, translucent things. It was an ethereal eternity. Now, yes, there's going to be continuity, or discontinuity, rather, between our present earth and the new earth. There's going to be a a vast difference. But there will also be a great deal of continuity between the new heavens and the the, the old heavens and the new earth. And the, the old heavens, the new heavens, the old earth, the new earth, they're going to have continuity together in such a way where we're going to be familiar with what we're going to occupy. It's going to be life enhanced to its greatest potential. The Old Testament describes it being a place where we get to work, we get to build houses, we get to enjoy relationships together. We get to enjoy the labor of our hands. You remember, work is not a product of the curse. It's not a product of the fall. Work existed before the fall. God gave Adam a job to do before sin entered the world. So we will enjoy working with our hands, constructing things, building things, working together and serving one another in the new heavens and in the new earth in a perfect way. Romans chapter 8, you remember where Paul says all of creation is groaning right now? Desiring to be freed from sin, desiring to be freed from the curse. I want to get rid of that. 
And then Paul says there's going to come a day when that's going to happen, when the curse is removed and the, the creation is renovated. And then he adds on, us too, our resurrected bodies will be like that. We long to be freed from sin, and one day we will be freed from sin. So think about what we know about resurrected bodies. Think about what we know. We know from the Gospels, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a physical body that could eat. Yes, it could also pass through walls, but it, it could eat, it could drink, it could walk around, it could talk, and it wasn't some glowing, uh, you know, crazy, mysterious, uh, physical body. It was, he, he looked like the gardener to some people. Look like a normal person. That's what's going to happen with our bodies in the eternal state. We're going to get physical bodies back. And so, too, that's what's going to happen to this earth in the eternal state. It's going to be a physical place. Our future is nothing less than a full bodily existence on a recreated earth that will be released into the fullness of its divinely ordained potential. It's going to be beautiful. Just think about creation at its best here and now. Go to Yosemite, go to Yellowstone, go to the beautiful places in the world that are filled with sin, that are broken by the curse, and we see majesty and glory beyond our wildest comprehension here and now. Imagine what it's going to be like then. The beauty of the new earth that we'll be on, that God will create perfectly, it's going to be incredible. John writes, I see this new heaven and I see this new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. We know that. We saw that in chapter 20. But then there's this very strange statement. And there is no longer any sea. If you're like me, you read that and you go, well, that stinks. <laughs> I enjoy the sea. I enjoy the water. No more beaches. No more surfing. I mean, I wanted to surf without the threat of getting eaten by a shark. So you're telling me I can't do that? Well... We have to be careful with how we interpret this. We have to be careful with the, the usage of sea, not only in the book of Revelation, but also in books in the Old Testament. Number one, the word sea is the first of seven no longers in Revelation 21. No longer any sea, that's the first one. And then we've seen a couple of them, no longer any mourning, no longer any pain, no longer any death. So all of the no longers are clearly evil things. They're clearly bad things. There's only two that might be taken a different way, and that's no more night and no more sea. But no more night probably refers to what happens in the night, what happens in the darkness. No more darkness, no more place to hide. Everything's open, everything's bare. You are completely, in the words of Genesis 1 and 2, naked and unashamed. So to hear... We're finding ourselves, when it says no longer any sea, it's a list of very obviously bad things. It starts the list, and that's why it can be a little bit confusing, but I don't think that this is referring only and merely to a physical body of water. The Old Testament uses the word sea often to refer to a place of chaos, a place of unknown fear, and a place of evil. Steve Lawson says it this way, To the ancient peoples, the sea was a frightful and fearsome and awesome monster, a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea. On a cloudy day, their ships were absolutely lost without the stars or the sun to guide them. Their frail ships were at the mercy of the ocean's fearsome, angry storms. The loss of human life in the sea was beyond calculation. So the sea represented a vast barrier for nations, continents, and people groups. 
It was a restless place of coming and going, similar to the way that James uses it in James chapter 1, no longer tossed to and fro like waves of the sea. Isaiah 57 says that the wicked are like the sea. The sea is home of Leviathan, an evil beast. Daniel's prophecy of the four beasts are coming from the sea, just like Revelation 13 describes. The sea represents ominous activity uh, as the Antichrist comes out of the sea. The sea also stands for separation. The nations that began in Genesis 10 that separated everyone were separated after the flood, and the the flood broke apart the continents and made the, the water, the majority of the earth being covered with it. The sea was literally standing guard over John as he is in prison on Patmos and separated him from the seven churches. Also, interestingly enough, the sea was described, I should say it this way, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon speaks of the golden basin that stood outside of the temple. He called it a sea. It was a golden basin that you had to purify yourself in, and he called it a sea that separated mankind from God, and you had to make purification, clean yourself up, and then you had access to God. So no longer any sea as far as any purification needed, no longer any separation. So what does no sea mean? I don't think that it means just merely a statement of the hydrology of the new heavens and the new earth. I do think things will probably be changed, maybe back to the way that they were in Genesis 1 and 2, where you have one land mass together, not broken up by water. You remember during the flood, God just ripped apart the earth and let floods pour out of the, of the earth, and then he rends the heavens and broke the heavens so that the atmosphere was completely changed. God's going to go back to the way that it was in Genesis 1 and 2. But I think it's more than that. In fact, in Revelation 22, there's a river that's flowing in the middle of the city. So if there's a river flowing, it has to flow from something to something. So there has to be some aspect of bodies of water that it's flowing from and to. There's animals in the new heavens and the new earth. They most likely have to be drinking water unless everything's going to be completely changed. But back to Adam and Eve in the garden, they were drinking water. So I don't think that no seed means no more ability to enjoy water and the things that come with water. In fact, if God wanted to say that, he could have used a different word for oceans, for bodies of water that are these massive, large areas. He doesn't say no more oceans. He says no more sea. So what does it mean? It means this is a permanent removal of everything sinful, of everything that could ever challenge God's order. There's no more sin. There's no more evil. There's no more chaos. There's only order. There's no more temptations. The older I get, the more I see my hatred for sin change. When I was younger, I used to hate the sin that I committed. And I still do. But now I hate the fact that I want to sin. It's gone much more internal. I hate the fact that there is still an ability that the devil has, that my flesh allows him to allure me to sin. I despise that about myself. I, I hate it when I act sinfully, but I hate it that I have a tempted heart that can be allured to want to act sinfully. I want that temptation removed. And in heaven, not only will we never sin again, we will never be tempted to sin again. No ability to be tempted to sin again. In the new heavens and the new earth, number one, 
Glorious reality number one, it is a completely sinless place. Reality number two, it is a comprehensively satisfied people. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be a comprehensively satisfied people. Not only is it a completely sinless place, but we will be a comprehensively satisfied people. The new creation is a holy community characterized by unalterable joy. This is verse 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem, we talked about this when we looked at Babylon. The new Jerusalem is the city of God, and it's the exact opposite of everything Babylon stood for. It's the antithesis to the city of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18 and into the beginning of 19. It's a completely different place. And God is going to make this. There's, there's a debate here of, is the new Jerusalem already in existence now? And it's just going to be brought out of heaven to earth? And then there's a question on the other side of, is God going to make the new Jerusalem at that final day? Start working on it and create it all then. He can do that if he wants to. It seems in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 23, that it is already in existence now. Uh, the question at hand is the phrase, coming down out of heaven from God. It's literally out of heaven from God. That's what my Bible says. It's out of heaven from God, so it's not made by man. That's the point of that. It's not made by us. God's the one who made this. I believe that Jesus is working on it now. You remember when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I believe in John 14, when Jesus said that, he says, I'm going to prepare the new Jerusalem for you. Just think about how glorious the new Jerusalem is going to be. God took six days to make the galaxies and everything we see. He's taking over 2,000 years to make the new Jerusalem. No wonder John is in awe and stands with just a dumbfounded look on his face as he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says its architect and its builder are God himself. We sang it in mansions of glory. This is from John 14, verse 2. In mansions of glory and endless delight. I go to prepare a place for you. Some people have this idea that we're going to be in uh, literal mansions, you know, on some hill somewhere overlooking a beautiful place. That's a wrong understanding of that word. That word is a dwelling place, and it's mostly uh, the, the construction of dwelling places put together such that it's a social community. You'll have a beautiful location, a beautiful house, but it's going to be connected to other people's houses so that you can enjoy sweet fellowship with them. This is where our citizenship is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. This is what all the saints in the Old Testament were looking for. They were looking for a better city, the city that is to come, a lasting city, not this city made with our own human hands. John sees this city coming down out of heaven. So we have a new heavens, we have a new earth, we have a new Jerusalem, a new city of God. But then the imagery shifts in the middle of verse 2. It's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The imagery shifts from a city to a bride. Chapter 19 told us that the bride was being prepared by God for this very moment. Isaiah chapter 62 says that the renewed Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is the bride of God. It's so glorious that the new Jerusalem looks like a bride walking in to the sanctuary. Those of you who are married, you know that moment. You men, you husbands, you remember that moment. And you were standing at the altar and the doors opened and you saw your bride. I don't know about you, I was crying. 
Just the emotion of that. Not only is she absolutely gorgeous and stunning, but the reality of I get to spend the rest of my life with my best friend. This is amazing. Best day of my life. This is awesome. That's what John sees. Finally, the new city of God is coming down. It's like a bride where you're just speechless and in awe. This is mine. This is ours. We get to be here together. The word adorned in the Greek, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. That word adorned is literally the Greek word where we get cosmetics from. It looks so stunningly beautiful. Just imagine this. Imagine this scene as a believer. You die in this life. You go to be with Jesus in the next life. You come back with him at the Battle of Armageddon. You get to enjoy being here for the millennial kingdom. And then the new heavens, or the, the old heavens and the old earth are fleeing away from uh, the great white throne judgment. I don't know where we go. We just kind of poof uh, out of that situation for a while. And then we get to be brought back and we see God make a new earth. God make a new heavens and God make this city come down out of heaven. Just speechless over the glory of what we're seeing. So the new Jerusalem is a city. It's an actual location. We're going to look at that next week. But it's also a people. Drop down to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in verse 10, he shows me the holy city, Jerusalem. So the city is a city, but it's also a people. It's a place and it's a people. It's a place for a people and it's a people for a place. The name of the city, the new Jerusalem, is also the community of the city. The city is a real city and the city is a real people. Notice this city filled with the saints. Other than the new heavens and the new earth that John sees, the very next thing that he focuses on is the people of God in the new Jerusalem. He's going to describe the new Jerusalem, but he doesn't even get there yet because he just says, look at the bride. Look at this people. The very first thing that we're given to see is a description of, of the people of God. Before God gets to anything else, and we're going to see a lot in the coming weeks, but before God gets anywhere else, he says, I want you to see my people. I want you to see my bride. It'd be like if you went over to some billionaire's house and you get to see all of his cars and all of his gadgets and gizmos and all the beautiful things that he has that cost him a billion dollars. You knock on the door, he opens it, and you're just in awe. Look at this amazing place. And he says, hey, before I show you around, I want to introduce you to my family. I don't care about these things. I care about them. That's what God's doing here. Hey, before we get to all the dimensions of everything that you can see here, I want you to see my people. These are the people that I love. These are the people that I care about. People ask me all the time, why should I enjoy church? Why should I love the church? Why should I enjoy and love these people? And my answer from Revelation 21 is because God loves these people. God loves the church. God loves you. God loves the church, and therefore you and I should love the church as well. The consummation of eternal life in heaven and earth, and the new heavens and the new earth will be profoundly social as we enjoy each other and enjoy God's enjoyment of us. It's a transformed world for a treasured people. 
verse 3, and I heard. So he saw in verse 2, he sees a vision, but then he hears an explanation and an interpretation of what he's seen. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will, literally the same word, tabernacle among them. The tabernacle of God. This is that dwelling place. You remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The tabernacle in the Old Testament was where God would dwell with his people. And here, God is dwelling, tabernacling with his people. That word tabernacle, it was a noun that became a verb because it was so often used to speak of a dwelling place, staying and remaining with someone in a tent, in a tabernacle. And it became so synonymous with dwelling that it just got turned into a verb. We have this too with, you know, words like um, ice skates, right? You have ice skates, that's a noun that if you go, you know, wear ice skates enough, you just end up saying verb form. I'm skating, right? You can just turn it into a verb. That's what happened with the word tabernacle. It's a noun that got turned into a verb, and that's literally what we see here. The tabernacle, the noun, the tent of God is among men, and he will tabernacle with them. He will dwell with them. He will make his dwelling with them. God's purpose in saving us is not merely to save us, nor is it merely to sanctify us. God's purpose is to dwell with his saved and sanctified people. He wants you, and he wants to be with you. And the Old Testament tabernacle prefigured this, but it was a qualified prefiguring at best. John chapter 1 says that Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us, but we killed him. We said, we don't want you. But in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, we will be with him and he will be with us. He will be our God and we will be his people, meaning we will never be tempted not to love him, always be in perfect fellowship with him. As it was before the fall, God will be dwelling with us again. That idea in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, you remember how temporary that setup was? Remember they would set it up, they would be somewhere for a little while, and then God would say, we're on the move, and they'd have to break it all down. And they'd have to go somewhere, wherever God was leading, and then set it back up. And then here, God says, I'm going to make my permanent tabernacle with my people. We're never going to move again. Just think of how glorious it would be if I got an email tonight from Heritage that said, you know what, we've just kind of canceled school for the rest of the year. Just use the library however you want it. Leave it set up. We don't need it. We don't need it. Just enjoy it. I would text Jeremiah right away and say, you'll never believe this. We don't have to tear down. We don't have to set up. Sam would just go crazy. We don't have any more sound system to set up. It, this would be amazing. And for those of you who have never been a part of Setup and Teardown, you don't know the joy that we would experience if we were told you never again have to set anything up. That's what God's saying here eternally. You're not moving anywhere. You never have to set anything up. You never have to tear anything down. I will do all the work for you, and it's permanent. It's never going to go away. No, no wonder God says, enter into your rest. We're not moving anymore. You get to rest, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell with you. That, that's enough. We have a new heavens, we have a new earth, we have a new city, and we have God dwelling with us. That's enough. The book of Revelation could end there, and we'd be amen and amen, I can't wait. Verse 4 opens with and. That, we're not done yet. His 
tabernacle will be among men. They will be his people. God himself will be among them, relationally loving them. He longs to be with us. But verse 4 continues. The good news keeps going. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, no longer any crying, no longer any pain, because the first things have passed away. These are the blessings that will come to those that are God's. He will personally wipe away every tear that you've cried, every tear from your eyes. Do you have pain? Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's emotional pain. Maybe it's relational pain. Do you have pain? Do you have sorrow? Do you have regret? Do you look back on your life and see moments that you wish you could erase and do over? Do you have difficulty in life? Do you have a disability in life? Do you have anything that causes you trouble and pain? God says, I'm going to personally see to it that I redeem this and I wipe away your pain and I wipe away your tears. Notice it says, he will wipe away every tear. There is no sorrow that you've gone through that escapes God's notice. There's no pain you've felt. I know in this room, there are thousands of pain that we have felt on our own individually without telling anyone. God knows all of them. God will address all of them. This is one of the reasons why eternity has to be so long. Because you will be able to sit at the feet of our Heavenly Father and He's going to say, Every single tear that you've cried, Psalm tells us that he's kept it in a bottle. He knows why you cried it. He has it there with him. And he will give you an explanation for everything. He will hold you through everything. He will wipe away your tears. He'll say, in that moment that you thought no one was with you, I was there. I was there. I was with you. Some people ask, how are we going to be crying in heaven? It seems like we bring tears with us into glory. Somehow, we will be crying. Maybe it's remorse over sin. Maybe it's the suffering and persecution that the believers experienced as they went through the great tribulation. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that God himself will personally comfort you. And that's the point of this verse. It's a personal, intimate comforting. This is his promise. Literally in the Greek, he will wipe out of our eyes. So it's not far away, just, hey, stop crying. It's with you, personally, wiping out of your eyes every tear you've cried. Personal, intimate care. Because the God who renews all things, redeems all things. We in the new heavens and the new earth will experience a completely sinless place. We will enjoy and experience together a comprehensively satisfied people. There is nothing that we will be lacking. There's nothing that we will want that we won't have. Perfect satisfaction because our God will be among us, dwelling with us, walking with us. My son asked me the other day, God, or, uh, Dad, how did God uh, communicate to Adam and Eve before uh, Jesus showed up? His difficulty, we were talking last night at the Valentine's Day thing, we were talking about explaining the Trinity to your kids. That's a difficult one for sure. He said, how did God do that? How did, he, how did he communicate? The Bible hadn't been written, and Jesus wasn't there to talk to Adam and Eve. So how did God communicate to them? And I said, do you remember what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden? Do you remember what he did? And my son goes, yeah, he, he walked with them. 
He walked with them in the cool of the morning. He walked with them in the garden so that they had everything that they needed. They didn't need the Bible because they had the word there in their midst. And so too we in the new heavens and the new earth. We won't need anything because we have God giving us everything because he's giving us himself. But it doesn't end there. Lastly, number three, the new heavens and the new earth will bring about the consummation of the Savior's promise. We will experience the glorious reality of the final consummation of the Savior's promise. This is verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's a quotation from Psalm or from Isaiah 43, verse 19. But it's very interesting because in Isaiah 43, 19, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I am doing something. We could translate it, I'm doing something new. And here God says, I'm making all things new. Every single thing is made new. And then he says, write. John, you need to write. I wonder why God has to tell him that. First of all, it's very interesting because this is the 12th time in the book of Revelation that John was given the command, you need to write. But this is the first time that he's given that command by God himself. The, the last time that we saw God talking to, from the throne to John was chapter 1, verse 8. But there he didn't tell John, you need to write. There, there were always angels saying, hey, pick up your pen and write. Pick up your pen and write. Here it's God himself saying, John, you need to write. Why do you think John needs to be told to write these things down? I think his jaw is on the ground. I think he's holding his pen, looking at the new Jerusalem, looking at the new heavens, the new earth. And I think he's just going, eyes wide open, and God goes, hey, keep writing. Oh, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> new heavens, new earth, oh my word, what am I missing? Note, God commands John to write, not for John. John sees it all. God commands John to write for you, for me. God wants you to know this is your future reality. God wants you to be aware, to hear, to see, to understand, and to feel the awesome nature of your eternal destiny. This is God himself speaking this. He says, I want my people to know this. We're not done with the story yet. So pick up and write. I'm making all things new. I'm doing it, God says. He's defining this new creation as not the achievement of technological advancements or education or religious pluralism or anything like that. This isn't humanity's endeavors. This is God himself making this happen. And we might say this is too good to believe. This is too good to be true. And that's why he says, right, because these words are faithful and true. How can you trust this promise? God says they're faithful and true. Well, how can we trust that they're faithful and true? That's the next verse. He said to, to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We know that this is true because God himself, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, God's saying, I am the A to Z of all of human history. Therefore, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the end. God started human history. He will end human history. And all of its unfolding will happen exactly according to his sovereign plan. He says, it's done. It's done. This isn't the... Uh, same word that Jesus uttered on the cross, that's to telestai, it is finished, it's accomplished, it's paid in full, that's a calculated uh, you know, money, c currency, monetary term. 
paid in full, your debt has been paid. And this is a different word. This is the Greek word genomai, and genomai is a plural verb in the perfect tense, which means you could literally say, they have all happened. They have all happened. That's what God's saying here. They've all happened. So my question is, what's the they? And the answer is, everything that needed to be completed. Everything in Revelation that needed to be finished, everything that prophetically that needed to be finished, everything that needed to be completed has finally been accomplished and completed. Therefore, God says, we're done. New heavens, new earth, new creation, we made it. And he can declare this promise because of who he is. It's done. Even though it has yet to come, it's done. So he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts. So it's God's promise. That's why this is the consummation of his promise. He promised this would happen, and it's happening. But he goes beyond that. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You remember in chapter 17 and 18, Babylon and the harlot that sat in Babylon had a cup filled with immoralities, filled with murder, filled with sin, and held that cup out to anyone who would want to drink. And so many drank of that cup and thought that they were satisfied. Maybe for a moment were satisfied, but in the end they were destroyed. Jesus says, I have a a spring to offer you. This isn't just a cup. This is a spring. It's the spring of the water of life. And this cup actually, this spring actually satisfies. If I were to ask you, what's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament? You know John 3.16? And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. What's the Old Testament version of John 3.16? I actually think it's what God's alluding to here. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Behold, anyone who thirsts, come to me, and I will give him water without cost. And anyone who's hungry, come to me, and I will give him bread without any money. You don't have to buy it, I'll just give it to you. Notice the only qualification to enjoy this is to say I'm thirsty. The only qualification is to say I'm hungry. If you bring money to God, the money of your good works, your righteous acts, if you bring that to God and say, here, God, here's what I have to offer you. Can I have bread? Can I have uh, water? Can Can I be satisfied? God will say, no. He will turn you away. Because you must come and enjoy it without cost. But if you come to him with the only qualification needed, I'm thirsty and I have nothing to offer you. I'm a beggar pleading with you for bread, and I have nothing to give you. Will you be merciful and give me satisfaction? God says yes and amen. That's it. That's the only qualification that you need. I'm going to give you the spring of the water of life without cost. Psalm 16, 11, at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. My my question to you this morning is, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you have a satisfaction that is so deep inside of you that you've tried to finally fulfill it? You've tried every which way, whether it's your good works, whether it's being a nice person, whether it's your sin, whether it's living in sin. You've tried every way possible to say, I'm going to find satisfaction, and you can't find it. 
and you're here this morning and you are, as Augustine would say, restless because you have not found your rest in Christ. This morning, Jesus offers you this amazing offer. I will give you satisfaction and it won't cost you anything. Just come to me and you'll be satisfied. Come to me. The only qualification is you must be thirsty and you can't bring anything. And if you do that, Jesus says, I'll satisfy your soul. Sin satisfies for a moment, Proverbs says, but in the end it brings death. Jesus says, I have come to give life and life abundantly. I'm not just going to give you satisfaction in this life and then it ends. I'm going to give you satisfaction here and then in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. This was the exact same promise that was given to the Laodicean church in chapter 3. If you overcome, Nico, if you are the overcomer, if you persevere to the end, you'll inherit it. How do you inherit something? You inherit it either when someone dies and they leave you as the one who's going to inherit it in their will. Well, God's not dying and disappearing and then leaving us, you know, as the inheritance uh, in his will. The other way is you have to be a son. You have to be a son. You have to be a part of the family, and thereby you can enter into the inheritance of what the Father has to give. And that's why this second part is so important. If you overcome, you will inherit these things because God will be your God and you will be his son. There's a very specific reason why John writes down son, why God said son. This is not saying that if you're a woman, you can't inherit these things. This is using a Roman understanding of adoption. The Romans adopted very differently than the way that we adopt in you know, modern America. In our kind of form of adoption, we typically adopt young babies or younger children that are in need, that don't have a home, that don't have a family, and we adopt them. That's not the way that Romans adopted. Romans would adopt much, much older in life. You were usually past your teenage years and actually, it's a very funny reason for adoption. Uh, the dad would look at his kids and say, my kids aren't going anywhere, and I don't want to give them any of this money, any of this inheritance. They're kind of failures. They're kind of bums. I'm not giving it to them. So they would wait. They would watch other people. They would watch other sons. They would watch other men, and they would see them progress and develop and be amazing and be strong and be awesome. And they would say to the family, can I please adopt your son? And they'd pay money for him, They'd bring that son in and they'd say, sorry, boys, this guy's getting all of my inheritance because you guys are bums. That's the way Roman adoption worked. Kind of glad we're not in Roman days. Notice the beautiful imagery here. God doesn't look at us and say, hmm, I was looking for somebody awesome and you're it. God looks at his son and says, who can we also give the inheritance to? And he looks out into the world and he finds, like Paul says, not many wise, not many noble, not many who are smart and able. He looks at the failures of the world, have no money, no ability to buy, and he goes, I want you. I want you. Be my son. God didn't look at us and see anything worthy in us. He saw the image of himself in us, which, yes, that gives us worth, but all he saw was our unworthiness. We cannot get into the family of God. We need to be adopted. And that's why Jesus came to earth, because in coming to earth and living a perfect sinless life, he became our worth so that the Father can see us and say, yes, you are worthy, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Jesus has done on your behalf. 
We are adopted into his family and we get all the benefits. We inherit not because of anything we've done. We are satisfied. We get to drink fully from the spring of the water of life, not because of anything we've done. It's all because of mercy and grace. Finally, in verse 8, we end on a sobering note because John wants to remind us that not all people make it here. There's a list, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. They're not going to be there. They'll be in the, the lake of fire. Who are these people? Cowardly. These are those who would repudiate their faith in the face of persecution. They would say, nope, I'm done. They were near to Jesus, but then they said, I'm out. Unbelieving. Literally, it's the word unfaithful. They started following God, but they said, I'm out. Abominable. Literally, the word is polluted ones. Those who were polluted by the world and pollute others. Murderers. Maybe even those who were murdering on behalf of the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. Immoral persons. Those who are practicing immorality. Sorcerers. That's that Greek word, uh, pharmacy, where we uh, get the idea of drugs and drug use from. Idolaters. Those who would worship idols through drug use and immorality. Liars. That's we're going to see three different lists in chapter 21 and 22 that deal with people who don't make it into the new heavens and new earth. And all three of those lists have the same ending, which is liars, all liars. They had no part in the first resurrection, so they will have a part of the second death. Why? Here's the reason. They did not prove to meet the qualification in verse 6. Verse 6 said, you had to come with no money, with no ability, and you had to be thirsty and beg the Lord for satisfaction. But these people in this list in verse 8 say, mm, I don't think Jesus is worth it, or maybe I have something that I can offer. They are not coming thirsty. They're not coming hungry. They are trying to be satisfied by their sin. And so God says, I won't give you anything because you're seeking to be satisfied in a different way. Verse 8 is John closing the door on the possibility that there will ever, ever be a second chance in the afterlife. Can I ask you a question? What is, how would you define apostasy? How would you define apostasy? You hear it a lot in our day and age, the idea of deconstruction, deconstructing your faith. What is apostasy? It's really the photographic negative of repentance. Both are deliberate acts of turning, but apostasy is an anti-turning. It's a turning away from the Lord. And we see people in the scriptures that do that. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Demas, who loved this present world. Judas, who lived with Jesus for three and a half years and walks away. What do they all have in common? All those people in the scriptures that apostatize, that turn away that are following, just like verse 8 talks about these people that are following, but then they are cowardly or unfaithful. What do they all have in common? They all have nearness to the gospel. But they don't finish. They don't overcome. They don't persevere. Every sin carries with it the seeds of apostasy. We all find ourselves doing something in verse 8. That list in verse 8 is so similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, this list of people that will not inherit eternal life. And then Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were saved. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Every day, preach the gospel to yourself and say, Jesus is better than sin. Jesus is better than anything in this world that tries to satisfy my heart because it can't. Only Jesus can. What are you holding on to? 
What are you holding on to that's going to keep you and guard you from temptation, that's going to keep you from despair in the midst of trials, that's going to keep you from sorrow to the point of finally leaving because you just feel like God's let you down? What's keeping you? What's holding you? And what do you hold on to? Richard Baxter said, the best thing to hold on to is heaven. In his book, he's an old Puritan pastor, in his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, he said, Christians should meditate on heaven for 30 minutes every day. Just sit and contemplate the glory that is to be ours. And he wrote that on his deathbed. He was very near to his, his own death, and so he said uh, to his church and to others who would read, meditate on heaven, meditate on the reality that will be yours, and that will enable you to endure to the end and anticipate with great longing our eternal home, the rest that we have. We said it at the very beginning of our Revelation study. One of the reasons why we study it is because it is a very black and white book. There's no gray here. You're either in the new heavens and the new earth or you're not. And so I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know that this is your eternal reality, don't leave. Don't leave until you talk with somebody up here that can encourage you. Talk with somebody that you're sitting next to you and ask them, why is Jesus more satisfying than sin? Why is Jesus more satisfying than this world? Talk to somebody and, and ask them to show you why he quenches thirst like nothing else can. Then and only then will we be able to hold on to something that will get us through from this day to that day with great joy. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is just a marvel to our hearts. We long, we long for this day. And we say with John, come quickly to make this day happen. We long for this day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that day, make us faithful followers of you who in the face of persecution, suffering, and sin, we would say, Jesus is better. God, we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.